Well, hello, everybody. It's great to be back. It's great to see you. And thanks so much for your prayers the last couple of weeks. It was a great time to be in Israel once again, and we also went to Jordan and Egypt. So it was uh, pretty full, and except for a few snafus with airlines that uh, didn't mind overbooking all their flights, we, uh, we had a great time. So thanks once again. I don't know if you've noticed, but when God chooses to test our faith, the tests are pop quizzes. You don't get them in advance. It's not like you get an email that says, oh, by the way, next week, 2 o'clock Tuesday, you know, you're going to be tested, so you better start studying. Better get spiritual. Better read your Bible and start praying a little more because uh, 2 o'clock Tuesday, it's going to hit. doesn't happen. When God tests us, it's like he drops a live grenade in our laps, and all of a sudden we've got about 1.2 seconds to decide what we're going to do. Sometimes it's not even a decision. It's more of a knee-jerk reaction that reveals who we are. It's not a test that we get to decide who we are. It is a revelation of who we are. And sometimes this is not a favorable event. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Notice how the author, notice how Moses writes here of the, the expansive nature of the famine. He says it's, all, it's severe in the land of Egypt, verse 56, but not just Egypt, 57 says all the earth, which would include Canaan, which would include where Joseph came from, the land of his brothers and his father, which brings us now to chapter 42. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? Isn't that a great line? If you've got the new international version, it says, why do you just keep looking at each other? Which is an even better way to translate it. In other words, why don't you guys do something? There's bread in Egypt. Go to Egypt and get bread so that we don't die. In fact, this is what he says starting verse 2. He says, Behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Ah, Deja vu. Jacob has found a new favorite son to replace Joseph. Remember, Joseph was the favorite son. He was the favorite son because he was the son, the oldest son, the firstborn son of the favorite wife. Jacob had four wives, like at the same time. Bad idea. <laughs> but anyway, he did it. And uh, his favorite wife, Rachel, died in childbirth, and she gave birth to only two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph is now gone, so Joseph, Jacob thinks, so Benjamin is now the prize. And Jacob says, well, you ten guys go on down and get bread, but Benjamin's not going with you. So all of a sudden, Jacob is cl clearly communicating to these ten brothers, harm 
can befall one of you guys. That's fine. But Benjamin, he ain't going. Because I'm afraid that uh, he, he will die as well. This protective father. Imagine, it's been 22 years now since chapter 37. 22 years Benjamin has grown up with this kind of a father. Did you have a protective father? Don't raise your hand, but maybe you still have a protective father. <laughs> but growing up with that kind of, uh, you know, overprotective type of uh, situation, and just imagine the angst that Benjamin lived with. So these ten brothers, in fact, the same ten brothers who sold Joseph to slavery in Egypt, now go to Egypt, and they go there to buy grain. Look at verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly and said to them, From where have you come, or where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. So his brothers appear and they bow down. Now, I don't know if you remember Joseph's dreams, but Joseph's dream number one was that his brothers would come and bow down. So dream number one, check. Done. But remember dream number two, that was all the family. The father and his mother, probably his stepmother, Leah, would also come and bow down. And not all the brothers were there yet. So it's only kind of like half a check. Benjamin wasn't there. And Joseph recognizes that Benjamin's not there. Joseph can put two and two together. And he speaks in a severe tone. It'd be real easy for us to think that Joseph is just being vindictive here. I mean, like all of a sudden, Joseph's got the power. Joseph's got the opportunity. These guys have it coming. I'm about to let the hammer drop on these ten rascals who sold me into slavery. But that is not at all what Joseph has in mind. This wasn't payback. Joseph realized that the brothers, that he was going to rule over his brothers. And over the last 22 years, as we've seen in Psalm 105, God has been refining Joseph and preparing Joseph for this moment. This was not any sense of payback. Joseph realized that God was going to use him to do a wonderful work, not only to preserve lives, but also to change lives. So Joseph accuses them of coming as spies in order to get them to talk. The allegation required them to give a little background. Joseph didn't know why Benjamin wasn't there. He could, he could guess. Maybe he's, now he's the favorite son, but for all he knew, these guys had gotten rid of Benjamin as well. And so Joseph asked them about where they came from. So they say, verse 10, They said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. 
But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. Aha! And one is no longer alive. Aha! So now Joseph's putting it together. Okay, Benjamin's still alive. He's just now the favorite son. And these guys think that Joseph is dead. One is no longer alive. And yet the irony is he's standing right there in front of them. He's wearing this Egyptian makeup, this Egyptian headrest. He's, he's speaking Egyptian. We're going to find out through a translator. So they are clueless that this is the brother that they betrayed. And Joseph hears it all. In fact, I've often wondered if the translator didn't kind of just often look back and forth to Joseph like, you really want me to? Okay, and, and Joseph's like, he understands the nuances, the inflections, the, the tone, the sarcasm, everything about these brothers that the translator's just given words. Joseph's also hearing the body language, the emotions, everything that he knows about his older brothers. He understands the language better than the translator does. Translator's there as part of the costume, as part of the veil that hides Joseph's identity from these ten brothers. One is no more. Ouch. I bet that hurt. Benjamin hadn't come. One thing he, he, that Joseph did know was, or, or didn't know, I should say, is had his brothers changed? It's been 22 years. God has refined Joseph, but has God also been working on these guys? God has prepared Joseph for this moment. Has God also been preparing the brothers for this moment? Joseph had to find out. What kind of guys were these guys? What kind of men were the brothers? Had they changed, or did they still have jealous, malicious heart? against the favorite brother because Benjamin now had replaced Joseph. There was only one way to find out. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. In other words, nine of you get to stay, one of you gets to go home and get Benjamin and come back. And then he sticks him in three days and just lets it cook. I wonder if he put him in the same prison that he was in. I wonder. We aren't told, but I wonder. Three days, three days, their consciences do their work. Joseph calls this a test. And this was more than merely an opportunity to prove they weren't spies. He knew they weren't spies. But what he didn't know, if they were the same rascals that they were 22 years earlier, there's no way to know that except to test them. So Joseph puts them in prison for three days, and their consciences begin working. They have three days, three nights to stare at the walls, to stare at one another, and to stare at the elephant in the room. This brother that they have betrayed. They were imprisoned in the confines of their guilt. And God began to, you might say, exhume the dead brother that they had tried to bury 22 years ago. Three days also gave Joseph some time to think 
I mean, this was a pop quiz for him, too, to think, to pray, to improve his plan, and he did. Verse 18, he changed it a little. Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, but as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, and so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. So now Joseph's changed the plan. Instead of only one brother returning for Benjamin, Joseph chooses one to stay imprisoned. This allows them to carry more grain back. Joseph is looking out. He realizes the famine's a big deal. More brothers means they can carry more grain for more provision to take care of daddy and the family back home. But one thing he didn't change, he required Benjamin to come. Basically says, look, don't come back asking for more grain if you don't bring Benjamin. That's part of the plan. And uh, three days of imprisonment had also done their work because immediately they began to, to talk about Joseph. It's been 22 years, and they've still got Joseph on the brain. Their conversation here, they say, didn't I tell you don't sin against the boy? Truly, we're guilty concerning our brother, verse 21. They're talking about Joseph, about what they did to Joseph 22 years ago. And here is Joseph is standing in front of them, listening to them talk to one another about him. And he turns away, we're told, verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. He had to get out of there and weep. He just had to let it go. Remember, Joseph had named his firstborn son Manasseh. Manasseh talks about meaning causing to forget. That's what his name means. And he named him that because it said that, that the Lord had helped him to forget the pain of his family. And yet, isn't it amazing, even though God can bring healing, how sometimes memories can bring tears. God's healed you, but boy, you get around somebody that caused pain of years ago, all of a sudden it can well back up so fast. And this is what Joseph is dealing with. So, 24 again says, He turned away from them and wept, but when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned. Behold, it's in the, even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? They were interpreting these events not as some random accident, but as God's deliberate involvement in this situation. They see God in this. They see 
God in this. Well, this brings us to our first principle, and it's a hard one to hear. God will use a variety of circumstances to awaken our hearts to him. If you've been stuffing something for years, God will use the years of time to eventually awaken our hearts. God will use a variety of circumstances to awaken our hearts to him. Things that seem totally unrelated. Once you're hypersensitive to a life that's not walking with God, you will all of a sudden begin to interpret everything that's happening as happening because God's trying to get your attention. And that's what these brothers were doing. God will use a variety of circumstances to awaken our hearts to him. It was uh, about 10 years ago, I guess, a little before my 45th birthday, that my body decided to give me a little gift. I awoke in the middle of the night with a smarting pain right in my kidney. And I don't know if you've ever had a kidney stone before, but son, it hurts. I mean, it felt like a hypodermic needle, literally. That's the best way I can describe it. It was a pointed pain. It's like a hypodermic needle about three inches long just sort of inserted into your back and then twisted around a few times for good measure. You, you can't get comfortable. There is no way to find comfort. And uh, it was scary. And the, the scariest part about it is I didn't know what was happening. So the next day, I called a doctor friend of mine, and he says, sounds like you had a, have a kidney stone. I said, a kidney stone? Nah, it's not a kidney stone. I remember my father had a kidney stone. You know, he had a kidney stone because he's an old guy. I wasn't an old guy, so it's not a kidney stone. It's probably a kidney infection or something. Isn't it amazing how you're smarter than doctors? <laughs> so I decided to go to a urologist, did an x-ray, did this, did that, walks in in kind of a ho-hum manner, shakes my hand. Uh, Mr. Stiles, you've got a kidney stone. And he holds up the x-ray and points to this little delta-shaped blip, on, and it kind of looked like lint to me. And I said, are you sure? He just kind of looked at me. <laughs> he said, yes, and it's as big as a raisin. Yeah. This is not good. And it was terrible. I mean, three weeks of that little demon working its way finally to, anyway, horrible. Horrible. I felt really old at that moment. <laughs> And waiting for that little darling to pass made me rethink my theology of purgatory. <laughs> so finally, I'm, I'm in his office for the last time, and he says, let me tell you what, you need to drink more water. And I said, you think? I'll be glad to do that. My problem wasn't kidney stone. The kidney stone revealed my problem. I was dehydrated too often. I needed more water in my body. You see, sometimes the pain we experience, whether it's physical or emotional, even spiritual, just comes as part of living in a fallen world. Everybody hurts. But sometimes the pain we experience is God's way of saying, this is a symptom of a deeper issue. 
Don't ignore it because the pain's not just going to go away. The pain is there as a gift to reveal something that you need to deal with under the surface. That's what Joseph's brothers were dealing with. That's what they were dealing with. As they summited the hill, finally getting back home, they saw their home in the distance. They probably saw their dad, and if they saw their dad, they saw Benjamin at an arm's length. And as the old man craned his neck to look at his sons and counted them, once again, there's a son missing. Verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. Mmm, how did that feel to all the other brothers? He alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. The nine brothers explained about Joseph, or the Egyptian lord, they thought, explained about him, they took him for spies, etc., etc., and how they kept prison, Simeon imprisoned and demanded Benjamin. And then they sheepishly add, you know, and all of our money is still in the sack. In other words, we have to go back to Egypt or live as thieves. Joseph has set this up beautifully to where their consciences on multiple levels are going to be bothering them unless they do the right thing. And Jacob's response is like the bursting of a dam. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Interesting. Simeon is no more? Simeon wasn't no more. He's down there in Egypt waiting for you to go. But what does that mean? If Simeon is no more, Jacob's basically saying, Simeon's as good as gone because Benjamin's not going to Egypt. So, we'll just write Simeon off. This is what he's saying. Benjamin is not going to Egypt. And if the text doesn't make it obvious enough, again, I'll emphasize, the rest of his sons were expendable. Hey, welcome home, guys. Thanks for the grain. Reuben even puts the lives of his own two sons up as security, but there's no deal. Jacob is not going to have it. No way is he going to risk losing Benjamin. Better to live as a thief. Better to live without Simeon. Better to try to just figure it out through the famine. But Benjamin is not going to Egypt because he can't risk it. 
He can't risk losing Joseph again. And then he makes this statement, all things are against me. We're going to see later on Jacob actually speaking to Joseph and saying, I never expected to see your face again, and here I am seeing your sons. And yet here in this chapter, all things are against me. It's really good that we take a deep breath and look at that. Because this is our perspective in life, isn't it? We look at the moment right now as if that's all the reality that possibly ever could be. Everything's against me. The reality was, no, Jacob, no, Jacob, everything is going just fine. It's going exact. God has worked all this out to get you to Egypt to protect you from the famine, to let you grow and prosper. It's all going just fine. You want to ask to Jacob, who never mentioned the Lord, exactly what role does God play in your life? When it seems like everything is against you, what role does God play in your life? Is he there or is he not there? Well, it's not a principle, but it is a question of application. What precious person or thing is God calling you to surrender to him? What precious purpose, or I'm sorry, person or thing is God calling you to surrender to him? For Jacob, it was Benjamin. You know, God can have everything. He can have these other sons, you bet. Not Benjamin. For some of us, it's a person. Maybe it's a child, grandchild, great-grandchild, a spouse, or an addiction. We got all kinds of Benjamins in our lives, don't we? There's nothing wrong with Jacob loving Benjamin. There's unwisdom in Jacob favoring Benjamin, but it's wrong for Jacob to idolize Benjamin. Sometimes our blessings have an inordinate place in our lives. God gives us great things, and then we just kind of say, Thank you, Lord, push the Lord aside, put the blessing right in God's place. And God may say, All right, I'll tell you what, I want you to give that back to me. Just want to test you on this. Years ago, one of my daughters, as a toddler, it's funny, the older you get, the more and more illustrations just become your kids when they were young, because <laughs> that's where they can't defend themselves. But she came to me, and she, she asked me to throw her in the air, you know, like fathers do, when we still could. <laughs> you know, you don't want to hurt your back, throw your back out. But, you know, it's one of those things, you pick them up, throw them in the air, and catch them, and throw them in the air, and catch them. When you do it inside, though, just watch out for the ceiling fans. You've got to be careful. <laughs> she loved it. I mean, I couldn't do it enough times. You do it until you're just fatigued, and you realize, you know, we do it one more time, and I'll probably drop you. So, but my other daughter saw the joy of daughter number one, and she says, me too, Daddy, so okay. So get her, throw her up, you know, catch her. As she leveled off about just below our 10-foot ceiling, and she's up there weightless, her face changed into sheer terror. And I caught her, and it was like a cat on a log, just 
all four limbs around me. And she says, no, Daddy, no, not again, not again. So I put her down, and she runs off. And I just got to thinking about that. What caused in the life and the heart of one to find absolute joy in the experience of being thrown into the air and caught, and the other was absolute terror? And the only thing I could decide is that one focused on my ability to catch her and the other focused on her inability to fly or whatever. It's a total different focus. Daughter number one was focusing on me and my ability. Daughter number two was focusing on her and her inability. Boy, that's us, isn't it? When we focus on God, we can be thrown in the air. God's going to catch us. When we're focusing on us, when we are thrown in the air, it is all hands on deck. Benjamin is not going to Egypt. And I struggle with this as my daughters are now young women because I'm now the one watching God toss them in a sense. And I feel that, in a, that do I trust God with my daughters or do I need to be in control of my daughters' lives? This is hard when your kids leave home or when you've got kids that now make their own decisions and they don't ask you about stuff. It's a struggle. We want our children to follow God, but we also struggle to let God lead them. And the very love that wants the best for them becomes the barrier in them receiving it. God knows what's best, and his will for our children often includes journeys to Egypt while we get to stay home and wait and see what happens. So Jacob is facing this test with his kids But interesting, this isn't the first time he's faced this test, remember? Thirty years prior to this, three decades earlier, he had placed Joseph, this is when Jacob is now returning with his wives and his kids from Padanaram, he's going back to Canaan, he is about to cross over the Jabbok River, and he hears that Esau is coming, and so he does that, and he places, you know, flocks ahead, and then children ahead, and then wives ahead, and then Rachel and Joseph in the very back. So if Esau is going to kill somebody, let him kill all them. But we're going to protect, you know, Rachel and Joseph. So once again, he's got, he's got his favorite one in the back. Thirty years later, he's still doing the same thing with Benjamin. Now Benjamin's in the back. Jacob, at 30 years earlier, had wrestled with God by the Jabbok. Remember that incident where he wrestled with the Lord? And it wasn't until the Lord snapped his hip and gave him a weakness that finally made him cry out for blessing that God blessed him before God could bless Jacob he had to cripple him and now he's basically doing the same thing God's going to have to wrench from Jacob everything from his hip to his favorite wife to his sons to the potential loss of his whole family before he's going to surrender to God and it also reminds us of something that happened decades even earlier when Jacob's grandfather was told by God to do the same thing. Remember Abraham, what God told Abraham? Take your son, whom you love, Isaac, offer him, basically take his life. Now, God wasn't telling Jacob to take Benjamin's life, but Abraham was told to do that, and Abraham did it. Amazing faith. Jacob knew this story. Jacob ignored that story 
and decided, you know what, my sons are my sons. They're not God's. Sometimes when God gives us stuff, like an Isaac, like a Joseph, like a Benjamin, like anything, like any blessing in life, if it gets to the point where that begins to get in our way with the Lord, the Lord may say, you know what, I'm going to take that back for a little while. I'm going to take that away so that you realize I'm the one up at the top. And in every one of these instances, it wasn't that God said, I'm going to take Isaac's life, but I want to be first in your life. I want to be first in your life. Often the Lord will take something and then only give it back later once it's in its proper place. But Jacob wasn't there yet, was he? In fact, this whole narrative skids to a halt until Jacob is willing to surrender Benjamin. And as we see this next time around, as we continue the story, we will see what God has to do to get Jacob's attention. God is immeasurably patient. He makes stalactites. (laughs) He has made thousands and thousands of stalactites, drop by drop, year after year. It takes a long time to make a stalactite. And it takes a long time to make a mature child of God. It could be also that, that your life has skidded to a halt, or my life has skidded to a halt until we are willing to put our Benjamin before God, rather than to keep saying, Lord, you can have everything but not this. God wants it all. He says, we're to have no other gods before me. That includes our spouse, that includes our kids, our grandkids, our money, everything. Nothing is before God. On our trip to Israel a couple weeks ago, we uh, drove down south through the wilderness where the Hebrews wandered for 40 years, the very wilderness. And one of the things that I love for our tours to do is to take 20, 30 minutes and just do some wandering in that wilderness. So we'll stop the bus, and I'll tell everybody, uh, head off in different directions, be back here, in, you know, 20, 30 minutes, because we are going to leave. But just take, take this time to wander for a brief time and experience what it was like to wander in the very wilderness. And there are a few times you can almost predict throughout the tours where people are going to be moved. This is amazingly one of them, where you just wander out in the wilderness, and it's just you and God for a brief time, and you realize, good grief. 40 years of this, 40 years of just walking and zigzagging and following God through this barren nothingness. I also had them read from Deuteronomy 8, that section. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Verse 2 says that one of the reasons that God had them wander in the wilderness is, quote, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. See, the test is not for God to know, but it's for us to know. It reveals to us who we are. And the end of that, verse 16, also says that God's purpose is to do good for you in the end. It says, he let you hunger, he let you struggle, he let you be with lack, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone. We are not just physical people, but we're spiritual people. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jacob was having to learn this. The brothers were having to learn this. Joseph, by God's grace, had come a long way already in learning this. 
and you and I are somewhere along that path as well. So again, those principles, God will use a variety of circumstances to awaken our hearts to him. God will use a variety of circumstances to awaken our hearts to him. Don't ignore those things uh, because God's not going to give up on you. How many more years do you want to just keep going of ignoring it? If he is knocking on your heart, open, surrender, give the Benjamin. And secondly, what precious person or thing is God calling you to surrender to him? Do it. It's hard. Believe me, I know it's hard. That's why we live this life as a life of faith. It's not a contract, you know, where God says, all right, here are the terms. Here's what's going to happen. You can count on it. No, it's just pretty simple. Trust me and obey me. Let's pray. Father, that same book, Deuteronomy, that we've read from, you also commanded Israel to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. We struggle with this, Lord. Hence, we need that command. We struggle with putting other gods before you. Hence, we need that command. We need the reminder. We need to read the story of Joseph, of Jacob, of these brothers and their struggles to apply these very principles that we struggle to apply. Father, as we've walked through this story, each of us have the Benjamins in our minds that we could stand up and say what it is. Some of them are embarrassing. Some of them may be just mere issues of pride. But we want to call it what it is and call it an idol. As it stands between us and you and between all that you would like us to become. Strengthen us today to take one more step towards surrender. That you may have it all. Because we love you more than anything else. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. It's good to have you back. I'm enjoying this reading. It's reading along with you, seeing, seeing it with fresh eyes almost. So uh, don't forget, we've got uh, cards back there for the movie if you want to share that with friends or get one for yourself. And uh, look forward to seeing everyone next week. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>